The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Trundle Tale Dog Edition. It's Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. It's Valentine's Day. On today's show, BPM, the French film about the ACT UP movement in France, was included on many uh, year-end best-of lists. We've been meaning to talk about it, and lo, we finally do. And then Babylon Berlin is yet another sumptuous, overstuffed novel on film on streaming TV, an extravaganza of late Weimar, early Nazi decadence and intrigue. It's on Netflix. And finally, we always knew that William Shakespeare, in addition to being the greatest writer in the English language, was something of an incorrigible plagiarist. Thanks to a once-in-a-generation scholarly discovery, turns out he's an even bigger plagiarist than we knew. Joining me today is Isaac Butler. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Stephen. You are a woof-op, a wonderful friend of the program. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we should keep appending new words onto either end until I accrete some sort of initialism <laughs> that takes like a minute to say. You have an alphabet trailing after <laughs> yeah, you like yeah. a robe. Yeah, exactly. I'll- I love it. I don't want to be remiss, though. You're also the co-author with Dan Coyce of uh, a oral history of angels in America called The World Only Spins Forward, which is now out, correct? That that is right. It came out uh, yesterday, the 13th. So it is now in stores. You can get it. It's it's crazy to have been working on this thing for a while and to actually have it be in the world is really something. You have that author on Pub Day Glow today, Isaac. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I... uh, I had a moment where, you know, you check your inbox or whatever and, you know, our editor wrote us to say congratulations. And, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to feel a little bit like crying all day. That's like, what uh, that's, you know, that's what it's going to be like. It's like you just feel you just feel full of of, of various I- emotions. So it's it's really exciting. It feels feels really good. Well, congratulations. You know, you're you know, you're sort of like you're like Sisyphus at the top of the incline right. standing there with his rock saying you fucking suckers down there with your little anyway yeah and, and, then and, we'll and the rock the rock's going teeter teeter right, right. teeter and then, I'll, and then i'll get some uh yeah yeah and then i'll you know you you start thinking about what the idea for the next one is or whatever and the rock just rolls right just back down rolls right you. back down uh I should also say if you're a, if you're a slate uh, if you're a you know slate aficionado, uh, there is an exclusive excerpt from the book that is up on Slate right now. That is actually one of my favorite stories that we had to cut from the original article. It's probably the most heartbreaking oh. cut, which is uh, the story of a theater company in Charlotte, North Carolina, putting on the play in 1996 and finding themselves in the midst of the culture wars as the government tries to shut down the show. Mm. Nice. Fantastic. So, Dana, um, who are you and I in that Sisyphus simile? <laughs> I think I'm someone trying to outrun Isaac's rock as it rolls back down the hill. <laughs> Taking it directly to the face. In a Buster Keatony way, right? Yeah, like, like the end of great... Seven Chances, yeah. the rock chase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm the guy who's like, um, can I borrow your rock as it comes rolling at my <laughs> fucking forehead? All right. Anyway, oh, uh, Dana Stevens is, of course, the film critic for uh, Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing? Uh, good. Thanks. Digging right in. BPM was winner of the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes. It's a truly remarkable film about the ACT UP movement in France in the early 90s. It's directed by Robin Campillo. I think I have that name correct. However, we'll get into this. I assume it was not nominated for Foreign Film Oscar, which is a bit of a crime. BPM stands for Beats Per Minute. The movie takes place uh, principally between the lecture halls where the ACT UP group holds its meetings, uh, the places where it enacts its protests, and the bedrooms of uh, one set of lovers in particular. Uh, it's filmed in a in- remarkable verite and fluid style. Its own filmmaker has called it river filmmaking. It is it is one of the best movies for a, in a great year for films. We don't really have a clip as such because that would be in French, but we have uh, its trailer, I believe. Why don't we listen to that? Je ne risque pas de choper votre comme le sida, je ne peux pas vider. Ah! Acte Paris, nous avons choisi d'affirmer le sida comme un défi. 
And in case you heard that clip and thought, why the hell are they playing me a clip in French? I think even if you don't understand a word of the language, that actually gives you a fairly good sense of a few things about the movie. I mean, the rhythm, it's called Beats Per Minute. The title in French is 120 Beats Per Minute, which is how many beats the human heart makes per minute. And uh, and the movie moves along with that kind of very propulsive rhythm. The house music you hear there in the background sets up the many, many club scenes that punctuate this film. So in between the activism, which is the people you hear yelling at each other and sort of, you know, very sharp discourse there. Um, there's there's these scenes of them letting off steam by going to dance clubs. So I think you get a little bit of a sense, even if you don't know what's going on. Mm. Um, Isaac, why don't I start with you? Um, because this strikes me as a almost perfect companion in some ways to your book and to Angels in America. It's a different but very related way of looking at the AIDS pandemic. I'm curious what you made what you made of this film. Yeah, well, you know, I've actually seen it twice now. I saw it when it was in theaters because uh, uh, Dan had a screener of it and he just texted me. It was like, you have to go see this movie. And so uh, uh, I went to go see it. And, you know, I just spent the last year researching the AIDS crisis. And in particular, even though ACT UP uh, is not in Angels in America, Angels in America takes place a year before ACT UP's founding. That's actually like a fairly deliberate choice on on Tony's part. But I had spent a you know a year researching the AIDS crisis, and I started as an activist as a kid, you know, in the in the AIDS awareness movement. I wasn't a member of ACT UP or anything, but um, and I was really struck by it. I felt like it really all the research I had done and the people I talked to about it and interviewed and things they had told me and. Uh, it was coming vividly to life. You know, there were two movies that came out a couple years ago, the documentaries uh, How to Survive a Plague and United in Anger, which both touched on ACT UP in the United States and used a lot of footage shot by ACT UP members. Um, this feels very much of a piece with that. And the first time I saw it, I found it absolutely emotionally overwhelming. I mean, I really was wrecked from doing anything for the rest of the day. Um, and I just rewatched it this weekend uh, to prepare for this, you know, when you rewatch something that struck you really strongly, it's always a little uh, frightening because what if you don't like it anymore or something like that? And actually, this time I liked it even better. And seeing it a second time, I was able to pay attention to how brilliantly shot and crafted a film this is, which I think kind of fall by the wayside amidst all the interesting things it's doing with politics and sex and the characters and everything like that. But just the way this movie is put together and the way it tells its story visually and how much is left sort of off the camera, but that you sort of infer through what's going on with the characters, it was just really stunning. I agree. Mm. I mean, before we get into the characters and the story, just to add to that, Isaac, I think part of why that happens is that, Steve, what you describe as a, a cinema verite style applies to some scenes, but not at all to others. Yes. And Campillo is very free in his filmmaking. He's He feels very in control of his tone and is able to do things like shift from fairly verite style, handheld, close-up cinematography, especially in these very argumentative act-up organization meetings that you hear a little bit of in that clip. But then, for example, in some of the dance scenes in clubs, the camera will do this very subjective thing where it sort of mm -hmm. turns the pulsing lights into shapes. And then the shapes turn into something that look almost like it might be a representation of the AIDS virus seen under a microscope. And there's this kind of marriage of, you know, the visual and the thematic that's just effortlessly beautiful. Yes, it's brilliantly pulled off. And that I should say that's what he meant by fluid or river-like filmmaking was, was kind of flowing between worlds, um, which is very much what the substance of the movie is about. The club, I forgot to mention up top, but yes, the club, the bedroom, the meeting hall, and uh, sites of protest are meant to blend into one another and interpenetrate one another, and uh, it's quite a powerful way of doing it. What struck me about this film, Dana, was that, that correct me if I'm wrong, but but there was something different about the AIDS protest movement in France than there was in America. So even if one knows fairly well the history of ACT UP, which I didn't in the United States, this movie is striking for how macho and deeply sexist French society is on the one hand. And so the idea of, of breaking gender norms in public uh, was uh, was quite shocking. But secondly, also, and I, this is something Campillo himself has talked about, that France is a good republic, right? It's a good republic. It's by ideology, supposed to be one country, not um, a polyglot assembled out of minority groups or interest groups. So it was sort of doubly radical to have a protest movement like this. And that gets driven home in the movie over and over and over again. It's not just that they're 
being impolite and just in, you know in furtherance of a just cause they are really going against the deep fabric of french society did that come through for you I don't feel like I'm conversant enough in French society that um, that that was like a thing that struck me immediately. You know what I mean? You know, to me, it was to me again, it was more pulling from like, oh, yeah, I remember I interviewed Sarah Shulman and this is how she said what she said these meetings were like. And now I'm getting to see a recreation of one of those meetings. You know, so I was I was more actually struck by the similarities between what I knew about, you know, um, uh, that movement in the U.S. and what I was seeing in France. Well, something that they're very explicit about in the movie, especially Thibault, the character who's the the leader of the, I guess you'd sort of call him the leader of the group. I mean, it's a very um, uh, unhierarchical group, but he seems to be one of the older and more experienced activists. Anyway, something that he explicitly acknowledges in the meetings is that they have to imitate the Americans mm-hmm. because what the Americans are doing is working. So they use the pink triangle that was very familiar from American ACT UP protests, and they have silence, égal mort, you know, silence equals death. They might even have it in English on some of their posters, and the die-ins and the kiss-ins and the kind of public protests that they stage are, I think, a lot of them copied from American activism. And, you know, ACT UP shattered taboos here all the time, too. The first kiss, the first gay kiss between men on on television was an act up protest during a news broadcast, mm. you know, where they commandeered the studio and started kissing in front of the camera. Oh, wow. I had no idea yeah. about that. Yeah. I don't, I, and by the way, I don't want to suggest for one second that act up had it easy or possibly even any easier over here. There were, there were some culturally specific right. uh, headwinds in, in France. You know, I, one thing I want to point out is the, 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 the movie won me over, over and over and over again. I sort of loved it throughout, but there was one moment in particular where Campillo tells you what movie he's not going to make. And I wonder if it struck you guys as well. <laughs> you mean uh, this... Sean's speech out the window of the train? Yeah. <laughs> oh God. I was like, that was such a great uh, establishing of the contract with the audience. There's a scene yeah. where Sean, uh, who's sort of the firebrand of the, of the group and uh, uh, stares out a window and delivers the very sentimental speech about how AIDS has taught him how to live his life. And then there's just a pause and he says, just kidding, you guys. And everyone starts funny. laughing. They're like, we were worried. We were worried. <laughs> because that's the movie, Dana, I did not want to see. And at that moment, I really thought, oh, fucking Christ. I mean, this is just going to be awful and it's anyway no this movie is always a step ahead of the viewer in that way and it also shows very effectively in fact this is in a way the driver of the whole plot is the divisions the ideological divisions within the act up group i mean there's much much less about external homophobia and these people confronting the outside world than the confrontations that happen right there in this empty lecture hall where they meet once a week for their for their organizational meetings and uh there's this side represented by the leader thibault i was talking about before who's interested in things like creating relationships with pharmaceutical companies and, you know, sort of trying to be a more respectable player in the global field of of public health. And then there's people like Sean, the firebrand character played wonderfully by an Argentinian actor named, I hope I get his name right, Nahuel Perez Biscayart who should have been nominated for every award. I think he did win some some French awards. And he's absolutely marvelous in this role as an HIV-positive, very young and very radical activist who completely disagrees with this idea of, you know, let's be liaisons with the respectable uh, institutions and who really wants to to perform protest more as kind of a, a mass act of, of shocking the public into recognition. Yeah, and you know, Dana, in the year-end movie club, you wrote this thing about the movie that I, I thought... Uh, was really brilliant, which is one of the things the movie does, though, is that it doesn't portray that squabbling as like the people's front of Judea versus the Judea people's <laughs> front, right? It's not like, look at these ridiculous people on the left and how they're constantly concerned trolling each other and can't get anything no. done. Actually, nor the secret, as, sorry. Nor as look at the noble firebrand versus the institutional square. Right, right, right. Instead, actually, the secret to their success is that they have that argument, that they're arguing all the time and that they're mm-hmm. they're planning all these different actions. And there's that great moment where I don't think he's his name is said very briefly but I don't remember the character's name he's the deaf member of ACT UP where he's like well then if you want to go do that go do that and if you want to go do this go do this and we'll just do them both which was actually how ACT UP worked if you could find a committee to do an action you could do the action it was not a consensus based organization and that's one of the reasons why it was so effective. So Dana I mean one of the wonderful things about the structure of this film is that it begins with you know I would argue the real focus of the movie um, the first third to half of the movie is, is the meeting group. And it's 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 just 
virtuosic filmmaking to have that many characters interacting with one another in what is superficially a chaotic way, even as they are being carefully individuated by the writer-filmmaker in order to bring you to the second half or final third of the film in which the story of two lovers really becomes the center of the story. Yeah, that's, I mean, when you say this this movie is a river movie, I mean, that's that's kind of a, an expression in French for um, for novels and films that incorporate huge amounts of, you know, that have lots and lots of characters, lots and lots of action that have kind of an epic sweep, but that also, you know, if they're good ones, sort of pick out the stories that, that they want to tell as they go along. And that, that story emerges slowly in this movie, this love story between Sean, the firebrand character we were describing, and, uh, and Nathan, Nathan, this new member of the group uh, who's relatively uninitiated to the ways of, of ACT UP and who kind of becomes mentored at first by Sean and then the two of them fall in love. And then as Sean gets sicker and sicker, he becomes his lover and his caretaker both. And, and so that love story sort of takes over while not leaving behind, you know, the story of, of the rest of the group that continues to, to weave in. Um, and it's just it's a really beautiful love story. And for anybody who thought there wasn't enough sex and call me by your name, <laughs> step right up we and see it. BPM. Yeah. This scene, this movie has one of the most incredible sex scenes I have ever ever seen because it's so talky you know the, the the director said like i wanted to show it from beginning middle and end right them getting undressed them figuring out the mechanics of how they're gonna have sex for the first time and then it's so talky in the midst of it of it too and then there's this really amazing thing where as they talk about their past lovers the past lovers kind of enter their physical space and are there um so it's like this very uh stylized thing i just it, it really is amazing yeah, it really is breathtaking. It's one of those moments that we were talking about before where the film just effortlessly starts doing something that it hasn't previously done, mm-hmm. and yet you don't feel jolted out of the story. No, it's all right. It's a remarkable movie. As I say, one of the more remarkable in a great year for films, BPM. It is streaming kind of all over the place uh, on Amazon and iTunes, etc. Uh, find it. Watch it. Tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Stephen, before we move on, let's do this week's business. First of all, tickets are now on sale for our next live show, which will be at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn, on March 7th at 7 p.m. We're going to be sponsored by the upcoming miniseries Collateral on Netflix, and it's our 10th anniversary show. Not quite happening on our 10th anniversary, but as close as we could get a live date to it, so we'll celebrate that on that night. And as part of the pre-show, Netflix will be sponsoring a trivia game with the comedian and writer Kate James. So prepare to put your knowledge of political thrillers, murder mysteries, and conspiracy storylines to the test as you battle for prizes and bragging rights. Our live show will start after the trivia at 7.30 p.m. So again, that's March 7th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. You can go to slate.com slash live for more information. And remember, if you're a Slate Plus member, you get a discount on your ticket. We also want to tell you about another Slate show, Slate Money, which is a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance. Featuring Felix Salmon, Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman, and political risk consultant Anna Szymanski. From Herbalife to Uber to hedge funds, it's your weekly breakdown of the most important and interesting financial news of the week. You can find it every Saturday morning wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about David Marquez's incendiary interview with Quincy Jones in Vulture, which completely broke the internet when it came out. There's lots of funny, shocking, amazing moments, and we'll be talking about them in Slate Plus. So if you're a member, you can hear that. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's our membership program, and it's a great way to support Slate for just $35 for your first year. That $35 helps cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Let me jump in and just say one last thing, Dana, uh, vis-a-vis business, is I'm doing an event at Bard College on Thursday, February 15th with Joe Hagen, the author of Sticky Fingers, the Jan Wenner biography. We will be discussing his really terrific book at the Weiss Cinema at Bard Starting at 5 p.m. goes till roughly 6.30. Two of us are going to bounce around thoughts and ideas, then a Q&A, and I'd love to see you there. All right, moving on. It's 1929 in Berlin, world of the Weimar Republic, best known as the decadent playpen that gave way to the Third Reich. Here it is, seamy, glamorous, teeming with wealth, poverty, Trotskyites, sex workers, and even some actual maggots. It's based on the best-selling novels by Volker Kutcher, 
Babylon Berlin cost a shice ton of money and it took three directors to make it work. It's been said that the star of the show is Berlin, but the the show does sort of have a centerpiece plot, at least as I've picked up on it after three uh, glorious episodes, in which Garion Roth, a police detective, arrives in Berlin from Cologne in search of a sadomasochistic porn film that is being used in a blackmail plot. He ends up sidekicked by Charlotte Ritter, who is a police, essentially a police uh, clerk or typist on a precarious basis for the Berlin Police Department um, by day. And at night, she's a sex worker in a nightclub. It is a very stuffed, sumptuous, overfull feast. But why don't we listen to a clip and we'll try to start picking it apart. Sie braucht eine Verbindung zur Polizei. Mir gehört die Polizei. Babylon Berlin. And again, we have a trailer, not in English, but that actually does give you some sense of it because you have a little bit of this uh, one nightclub song that's the centerpiece of the second episode that I believe is actually written by Brian Ferry. Um, uh, the song was, and uh, you also have people saying "polizia" over and over and over again, and you get some sense of the sort of mashup of different styles and worlds that's going on uh, in this series. Well, and I think which is mm. supposed to reflect the kind of crazy mishmash that was Weimar Berlin, right, which is so full of somebody referred to this as cabaret on cocaine. <laughs> and it has that feeling a little bit. It's, it's like dial up the seediness by even a few more degrees. Right. And one of those co-directors, we should say, is Tom Teichver, who, you know, directed Run Lola Run, which he's, was he's of, one of the creators of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he co-wrote it and he co-directed it. You know, in the in the 90s, he was like the great German hope of, you know, someone who was making interesting movies that would be you know successful over here in America. Uh, and that didn't quite work out quite the same way. But now he's uh, co-directed this show. And he also is actually the person who composed its score, weirdly enough. Oh, that's I love a director who composes his own scores. Uh, John, John Carpenter. Carpenter yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin sometimes. Uh, Isaac, I love that you called this a movie. It's, it's certainly in one sense, it's utterly cinematic. I mean, it, it is expensively produced and made with enormous amounts of care. Uh, as a piece of period filmmaking, it's uh, up there with, you know, sort of anything I've ever seen. You are plunged into the world of Berlin. But of course, it's also, I mean, how many hours long? 12, 14, 16 hours long. Um, it's it's a, it's sort of a sensory overload style of filmmaking. I love it, but I would like the, pl- I'm half, I'm about three hours plus in, but I'm still waiting for the plot to really kick in. You've seen a little bit more than I have. Is that a worry that you share with me? Well, an interesting thing is actually the the way that it's available here, what Netflix is calling its first season is was actually two seasons in Germany packaged together. Mm. So it was two eight episode seasons and here you're watching it as one sixteen episode, you know, arc. Uh and they're apparently making a third now because there's many, many novels in the in the series that this T V series is based and this, on. The novel series is not even done yet. I believe Volker Kutcher's still writing them, right? Yeah, he wants to take it all the way from, you know, nineteen twenty nine to the Reichstag fire, I think, is like, mm. you know, it ends around there. Um, and so uh, there is a lot going on. I actually think the thing that this reminds me the most of is the film L.A. Confidential, um, both in terms of the types of cops we're talking about and its approach to period and how broad its canvas is um, and that it takes place in the world that's sort of next door to the glamour. You know, you don't get no famous artists have showed up at this show yet. You know, they're not like going oh, yeah, to a play and hanging out with Bertolt Brecht or whatever. Instead, you get the <laughs> you know, you get the people next. You've door been avoiding me, Lotte Lenya. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't get any of that stuff. Instead, you get the people next door to it. Right. The people in the shadow of all of that stuff, which is a, very similar to what L.A. Confidential is doing. Four episodes in, I have a pretty clear idea of what's going on with that train full of gold and what the intrigue with it is. Uh, I am no closer to having any idea what's going on with that pornographic film that Roth mm. is tracking down. Um, and, you know, you can see some of the threads developing, but they have not really started to knit together in any kind of significant way. Yeah. I mean, there's international intrigue as well. There's there's internationalists from right communists from Russia that are in- attempting some kind of infiltration. And it's really clear that you're going to have to keep a lot of moving moving parts together to follow this. This I don't wouldn't say I'm quite as entranced as you guys. Are you loving it, Isaac? 
I think I like it a lot. Um, and, and, you know, I'm watching with my wife, Anne, and, and she loves it. Um, I love the milieu of the Weimar Republic. I'm always going to be up for something set there. I feel like it's missing something, and I'm having trouble figuring out what it is. And I, I think what it's missing is that I do not find Wrath, the protagonist, to be compelling at all. Like, oh, I, really? I don't – I feel like they have – and I know that from a, one of the interviews we read for, for in prep for this week, you know, I feel like they've, they've given him some stuff. He has PTSD and a morphine addiction. Because he's but, a World War One. Because he's a World War One vet, um, and that feels very external. And I think early on in the show, he's meant to seem kind of mysterious. It's the rare mystery show where the mystery has actually started way before the show begins. Like the detective mm-hmm. shows up and he is on a mission, and you have to figure out what that mission is. Um, but I feel like uh, I get no sense of actually who he is in any concrete way as a person in a way that makes me want to follow him. Which isn't to say that he's likable or not likable because that's not a thing I believe in. But I just, I like am not interested in his journey in the same way that I am in Charlotte's journey, who I think is Mm -hmm. like this fascinating character that I wish the show was fully about. Right. So let's, uh, I'll I'll say the uh, actors and actresses names. So uh, Charlotte's played by Liv Lisa Fries, F-R-I-E-S. I'm sure I'm butchering it. And, um, uh, Gary and Rath, the detective is played by Volker Bruch. Uh, what I would say, I, I'm surprised by that because I feel like I almost just want more of their of their story. I love both of these actors. I love both of these performers. Uh, his story seems, at least to this point, slightly more generic. Uh, it seems to come out of genre fiction in a, in a in a more standard way, where she's this wonderful collection of contradictory. Uh, characteristics and impulses. Well, you do see at least one odd contradictory quirk of Gary and Rath's very early on. It might be the first episode when he's at a bar kind of stoically drinking on his own. And then <laughs> there's this group of young people True. wildly Charlestoning or Lindy right. hopping or doing some kind of frenzied, you know, um, 20s style dancing in the next room. And he decides to join them. And next thing you know, he's Charlestoning up a storm and doing right. a flip off the wall. And that kind of think that maybe back in his past in Cologne, which is being set up as this small town country rube place that's so different from the exotic Berlin where he finds himself that he might have had some adventures of his own. Yeah. And, you know, the very first scene of the the, the show, he's sort of put under hypnosis and we see brief flashes of his life in Cologne, which is then abandoned. And, and, and in a weird way, I'm, I don't know that your points and mine are in disagreement. It's actually that they I feel like they're not doing enough with him right now mm. to establish mm-hmm. him yes. as a as a character, you know, to go back to. LA Confidential again, right? Like when Guy Pierce's character shows up, right? There's like a very some very quick establishing stuff with what's going on with him so that you actually do want to follow his journey through the film. They do the same thing with Russell Crowe, right? They do it like very quickly and efficiently and then you really want to follow them. And I just I feel like with Gary and at first I thought it was kind of deliciously mysterious and now I'm starting four episodes in I'm like this actually feels like this character's a little underbaked to me. Mm, interesting. So um, far be it from me to say that a TV show pairs beautifully with uh, the sociology of fascism but I have been reading about the sociology of fascism, specifically Nazi Germany recently. And this show, boy, does it pair beautifully with it because, you know, I mean, the the, char- the two characteristic facts of Weimar are the uh, traumatic aftermath of the brutal loss in World War One, for which they are paying onerous reparations and but but psychological reparations. Right. I mean, a culture essentially has been humiliated and that saturates this world who fought, who didn't fight who was broken by fighting. Um, and uh, I think that, that, that that's integrated into the plot of this show beautifully because he has to hide. There's a sense that if you are shattered by the front um, and are su- suffering from tremors uh, and other kinds of PTSD-related symptoms, then you are unreliable as a police officer. And he's come from Cologne, this virtual stranger in the Berlin police world, needing to... Um, win the credibility that it will take him to solve this case, therefore needing to uh, hide this uh, these horrible uh, afflictions, these symptoms that he has. I thought dramatically that works perfectly. I just need more of it. I need it to go further. And I suspect it will. I mean, I, I want to say I think this is marvelous. And the chances of me giving up on it at this point um, before watching all of it are precisely zero. I mean, I think it's it's captivating. 
Yeah. I will also say the other thing uh, is there is something kind of delightfully surprising in every single episode. Uh, in the first one, there's that dance sequence and there's also the theremin number. Yes. I love that there's a female thereminist who features yeah. in the very first episode. Yeah. You, and, and the nightclub she plays in, which I think is going to become a big setting throughout the show, is you know just this hyper weird place where you can dine on octopus in front of an entire tank of jellyfish while yeah. a female thereminist serenades you with Edvard Grieg. <laughs> yeah, I want to exactly. go to this place. And then uh, in the second episode, there's another incredible, She there's an incredible, that Brian Ferry number that we heard a little bit. Uh, there's this, the the show just gives over to a five minute dance number. You know, yes. that, oh, it's almost like we're in a Baz Luhrmann movie all of a sudden. And, you know, there's like at least one thing like that in every single episode, which I think is like quite delightful that it it's not just ticking the like prestige show boxes, uh, nor is it just ticking the, you know, noir remake boxes. You know, it's it's not just working out the tropes. It's doing other interesting things on top of that. And uh, that I find very compelling. And the same way that Mad Men held from its very first episode, the promise of moving through from the 50s through the 60s to the 70s you know uh, the the second fact about Weimar that I was going to say is that into this war traumatized society flooded the financial capital of the 1920s which made for this super decadent but extremely confused and divided society from which the money then withdrew after the 1929 crash leaving the political vacuum and kind of moral vacuum into which fascism arose. If that story is going to get told over the arc of several seasons, I am in it to win it. I'm in it to the end. I mean, that that to me is just one of the most, I mean, how could it not be one of the most sort of sickening and riveting episodes in 20th century or all of human history? And, and, and I love the idea that Mad Men style, they're going to try to recreate it. And that they're going to take their time to tell that story. I mean, from yeah, what I've exactly. heard, Hitler's name is mentioned exactly once in these first 16 episodes, essentially as a um, sort of scoffing at the guy who got the smallest buffoon. percentage a in the election. Buffoon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But one last thing I want to say about this show, which would probably be the main thing that would keep me in it, is just that the period recreation is really wonderful. And it doesn't suffer from that marvelous Mrs. Maisel problem that everything looks fresh out of the costume factory. You know, there's real grime and there's real kind of, um, you know, torn stitching in the in the worn out costumes and just all the love. I mean, I, I don't know enough about Berlin to know whether this looks exactly like 1929 Berlin, but the love that was put into recreating that, both some on location and some at the Bobblesberg Studios near Berlin, which is this historic studio where, I don't know, the Blue Angel was shot and Fritz Lang's Metropolis was mm. shot. It's this, this great palatial. I, I've been to this place, so I love to talk about it. But anyway, they have a huge prop room there that I remember being taken on a tour of where they just have every, you know, stuffed ferrets and every possible weird old <laughs> gramophone, every device you could possibly want because it's been a movie studio for almost 100 years now. And, uh, and so they really pulled out the, uh, <laughs> the full on props to make that city look great. Oh, marvelous. All right. Well, um, and, the, you know, the thing it doesn't suffer from, too, is the, you know, ha, 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 fascism could never come to uh, Germany. You know, that kind of right. uh, presentism, punchline presentism that I despise. Um, but anyway, Babylon Berlin, it's on Netflix. There's a there's a lot of it to watch if you like <laughs> yeah. it, and we do. So check it out. All right, moving on. All right. Well, in one sense, this is a non-story. We've always known that William Shakespeare was a plagiarist. He, he borrowed heavily from his source material. Um, he bent it so beautifully to his will. We never will get that. That's a pun um, that we never cared, really, especially. I mean, we certainly it never was taken as an abridgment of his uh, total, utter, uncompromising greatness. But in another sense, this discovery, the scholarly discovery of another source for Shakespeare's plays is quite huge. He seems to have borrowed not only ideas and concepts and plots, but specific language. I mean, it's really verging on we may have to expel him um, you know, from <laughs> school, kind of cheating a little bit. It doesn't matter. He's still the greatest genius who ever lived. But apparently... Um, not inconsiderable elements from uh, King Lear, Macbeth, Richard III, Henry V, and several other plays were taken from this one specific source. We are always so lucky to have Isaac on the show, but we're doubly lucky today to have him here to talk about this specific discovery. Isaac, begin with how surprising is this or unsurprising it is in general, but then why it's there is something unique and different here 
talk a little bit about it. Sure. Well, I should say that, you know, there's a list of, uh, you know, books that we're pretty sure that Shakespeare consulted because we see quotes from them or ideas from them or plots from them in his plays. There's actually a great kind of um, it's a small book. It's under 200 pages called uh, Shakespeare's Reading, which lays that out really, really well, uh, what those sources were and how he used them. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of biggies, right? He goes to Plutarch again and again and again. There's, you know, some Ovid in there. There's some Montaigne in there. Um, Hollinshed's uh, History of England. Yeah, Hollinshed's Chronicles. Yeah, absolutely. But... Um, there hasn't been, it's not, it's been a while since there's been like a new source discovered. And so there's this really fascinating thing where these two scholars, um, Dennis McCarthy and June Schluter, I'm hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, um, found this auction lot listing from the twenties where they were like, there is this book that may be of interest to people who like Shakespeare. And they tracked that. Um, book down and then they fed it and a database of information in Shakespeare's plays into actually the same software that uh, acad- you know college teachers like me use to catch plagiarists and um, uh, uh, they discovered all of these ways that this text A Brief Discourse of Rebellion and Rebels by George North uh, they found all these ways that it connects to Shakespeare's plays. Can I add one detail to that, which is what makes it the most incredible to me, is that this text by George North from, I don't know, the late 1500s was never published, right? So that's the reason it's been hiding from Shakespeare scholars for all these centuries, is that we're only combing through things that were at some some point in print, whereas this is literally just a manuscript that a guy who was a courtier to the queen wrote that fell into Shakespeare's hands, but that exists in only one copy that we know of. Right. Yes, that is, you know, that's like the Indiana Jones find, right? That's that's the that's the finding the Ark of the Covenant, right? And also, you know, I don't I can't remember when the last time was that we actually discovered a new source for Shakespeare. Now, I'm sure these findings will be reviewed. There'll probably be some controversy around them, but you know, it really looks like uh, this is the real deal, and it's just incredibly exciting to have another peek into his uh, thinking as he wrote these plays and and the way that he uses his sources. Could we give a couple of examples from the coverage of this, of, of some of the things that he, he lifted and in what form? Yeah, sure. So actually, this is one that I think is really important. Uh, this comes from the Times. This summary comes from the Times article, uh, which I'm now going to paraphrase, that in the dedication, um, North basically is uh, telling people who see themselves as ugly to be inwardly beautiful. And he uses a series of words. Uh, proportion, glass, feature, fair, deformed, world, shadow, and nature. Now, most of those words are not common usage words, and Shakespeare uses them in almost the exact same order in Richard III's first soliloquy when he actually makes the opposite argument. And what's amazing about that is it really shows you how Shakespeare relates to his sources, which is to say he's not actually just taking them verbatim and then putting them in his plays. You really see how influence works. He's wrestling with it. He's arguing with it. And in this case of Richard III, he's actually inverting the point, right? He's taking this idea that you can be inwardly beautiful and he's he's yanking it around. And, we're, and having Richard say, because I'm ugly on the outside, I have to have a soul to match. Right? Yeah, exactly. I know that there's a delightful list of dogs that, that, that Dana quite enjoyed. Oh, yeah. This is where the title for today's show, the Trundle Tale edition, yeah. comes from, because I just love this. So, um, so yeah, there's just another passage from the George North manuscript where he uses six different terms for dogs, which go from the noble mastiff to the lowly cur to something called the trundle tail, which I love picturing what a trundle tail dog would be. <laughs> and, uh, and, and North is using these to make an analogy with humans. Just as there is a hierarchy of dogs, so must there be a hierarchy of humans. And apparently Shakespeare uses almost the exact same list of dogs with the same words in the same order to make similar points in both King Lear and Macbeth. So that seems like another place where, yeah, the expulsion committee he needs to convene. <laughs> he, yeah, he'd get a failing grade in any you know college college class right now. Um, Isaac, you wrote a wonderful uh, piece about this discovery for Slate, in which you remind us um, that he was, uh, you know, uh, yes, he's the greatest poet, greatest dra- dramatist, uh, greatest writer in the English language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was also a, as you put it, a grubby businessman businessman who was tasked with filling up three thousand seats. A night in a theater that he co-owned, um, he just had to produce and uh, was under the gun of having to produce a ton of words. It's not shocking that he would borrow, but isn't it isn't it still shocking how much 
of his own genius defines what he wrote given how much he borrowed and given how much he wrote as an expedient magpie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, my point is not that Shakespeare wasn't a genius. My point oh, is that our, our, yeah. our romantic and modernist ideas of what a genius is are wrong. You know, the, my point is the genius is not the guy, you know, sitting alone in his room outside of society, sanctifying it and critiquing it with his beautiful works. And, you know, sometimes he is. But, you know, he you know, in Shakespeare's case, who is the greatest genius of the of the English language, he's someone in the world who exists in a particular context, who was a real person who was reading all of these works, seeing people's plays, being inspired by them and weaving those inspirations together and adapting them uh, and it's that adaptation and the way that they're woven together and, of course, the beautiful stagecraft and poetry that is the genius. I think often in our society we put too much of an emphasis on things being, quote unquote, original on the su- sui generis you know, aspects of genius as opposed to the way that influence is used. And Shakespeare, who's coming from an era, you know, pre-enlightenment era with different ideas of the individual and different ideas of what an author even is, has a different mm-hmm. approach to that. And that approach produced the greatest works in the English language. So maybe we should rethink our approach sometimes. Right. Though I would say this, and and I kind of really mean it, right? I have this Harold Bloom hangover that I can't quite get over from my, guess, my time in graduate school at Yale, but it goes as follows, which is that, yeah, he he came before the Enlightenment chronologically. He came before, you know, Romanticism, which gave us this, uh, uh, you know, um, super saturated idea of what the lone genius is. But he also created modern individualism to an unusually uh, high degree, right? I mean, he 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 sort of is. It's because it didn't matter how much he stole, plagiarized, borrowed mangled it just didn't matter that the shakespeareanness of shakespeare came through and the way it came through is the utter individuation and plurality of all of his characters all of whom exist in 360 degree almost no matter how small the part all of them have a 360 degree uh existence and so modern individuality is historically specific because it came to us at a specific point in time, which is at the end of the fucking 16th century. When this guy wrote these plays, he's the greatest genius. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't, have I don't to think extract our, genius from this conversation. I, I don't think. I don't think those points are mutually exclusive. I mean, I yeah, think Bloom probably goes a little over the top with it, but I don't think those. Of course. I, I don't. Which is his, as he is wont to do frequently. But I don't think those points are are mutually exclusive. Again, it is not. Um, hold on. Again, it is what you do with your influence, right? I mean, I think that the part where where Bloom is wrong is the anxiety of influence. He's not necessarily wrong about the greatness of Shakespeare. What the the that that what Shakespeare's doing with his influences, which includes you know uh, making them more complicated, is one thing he does. Is he dramatizes these things? He makes the characters more complicated. He makes the plots more complicated. He makes the ideas more complicated, and he puts different ideas in opposition with each other. You know, one mm-hmm. of the things that Shakespeare does that's so ingenious is that there's a dialogue in every one of his plays there's at least yeah. one in every one of his plays and that's part of what gives them their immortality all right and i will say just quickly dana i know we've uh, talked too much and i want to hear more from you but it's he also the remarkable thing is after 400 plus years of picking through these things in order to try to extract a cogent entity known as william shakespeare we still can't really do it so there is a sense in which his own individuality dissolves into his own originality, which is really rather extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, in those years in his life, was it seven years, Isaac, where nobody knows what Shakespeare was doing? Yeah. Yeah. They're called the lost years with usually a capital T, L and Y. Right. So who who knows? Maybe he was digging up his George North. You know, maybe he, <laughs> he was asking his friend George North for his unpublished manuscript. I promise I, I'll, I'll be gentle in my criticisms. Yeah. That's that's another side angle that I love to this story also is, to, is that this little you know, manuscript that would have been lost to the oblivion of history otherwise has been transformed and has been brought back. It's almost like, you know, George North gets his moment in the sun 400 years later. Yeah. And, you know, also the social circles, once you get high enough up uh, in English society at that time, are not that large, right? Mm-hmm. And this North may very well have been the cousin of Thomas North, who is the person who translated Plutarch's Lives uh, and who wrote the translation of Plutarch's Lives that Shakespeare would have read. Hmm. 
which might have been the means of transmission of the manuscript. So exactly. all that is fascinating. And I think, I mean, part of the reason to read up on this story besides the angle on Shakespeare itself is that it's an incredible piece of literary detective nonfiction, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. And the story of this scholar, Dennis McCarthy, who decided from a 1927 auction listing that he was going to go after this single extant manuscript and, and follow his intuition is really extraordinary, especially because he's outside of academia. Mm-hmm. And I really love the detail that he is an independent scholar who's supported by his wife who works in biotechnology. I mean, that's a dream marriage, right? Like you you can sit there and, and do your Shakespeare manuscript scholarship all day long and somebody's, your sugar mom is going to take care of you. I just, <laughs> I love that. I would love a story about their marriage and about the discovery of the manuscript itself. It's a great angle. All right. Well, this discovery only implants uh, William Shakespeare more in the center of the pantheon, but I'll ask you both, uh, do we do we have to boot him out of eighth grade? <laughs> I mean, certainly if someone if someone turned in a, a paper in an academic setting that was as plagiarized as any of Shakespeare's <laughs> plays, you would absolutely fail them. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no I mean, they used plagiarism catching software to catch this thing, right? I love it. Isaac's bad cop. Okay, Data, you're the softie. I'm calling him and George North both into my office after school. I'm at, no, separately. And they have to tell the story and the stories had better match up. Ooh, separately. <laughs> We're back at LA Confidential now. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> with the playing the audio between the rooms. Yeah, yeah. yeah, bumping back and forth between the interrogation chambers. I love it, Data. Cunning. All right. Um, uh, well, look at uh, check out Isaac's piece in Slate, Plagiarism Software's New Discovery About Shakespeare, An Opportunity to Rethink His Genius. It's a great piece. It's a great discovery and any excuse to think about the bard. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dan... You know what I'm thinking? You've never done an enye. You've never done a tilde over my end before. That's one of the variants that you have to get to at some point. Nya, 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 nya. Uh, you didn't so- like the foghorn? Or- <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, all right. So my endorsement this week is uh, is based on our passion for BPM. It's a movie that was written by Robin Campillo, not directed by. It's directed by a wonderful French director named Laurent Conté. Have either of you seen this, The Class, from 2008? No, it's supposed to be so good. It's so, so good. It's one of the, Well, you've been a teacher before, Isaac. It's one of the best films about teaching I've ever seen. And the story behind The Class is that it's based on a novel by an actual French teacher named Francois Bégodeau, who plays himself in the movie. And interestingly, this film, in addition to being written by Robin Campillo, is also edited by him. And it's the story of Francois Bigodeau's experience teaching this very culturally diverse and contentious group of high school students in Paris. Um, and it's directed by Laurent Conté and written by Robin Campillot in much the same kind of very discursive, rapid fire, um, really dialectical, to use your word, Isaac, the, the style that, that B- BPM unfolds in. So everybody's point of view has some legitimacy, but everybody's also a little bit over the top and crazy. And the Teacher has all the best intentions, but also is, you know, sort of putting his foot in all kinds of situations he doesn't understand. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film about about class, both in the sense of a classroom and of social class. And uh, just like BPM, it never hammers you over the head with its ideas. It really lets them kind of come to the fore of, uh, through the language. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful movie. The Class from 2008. Um, I just added it to my Amazon watch list. That sounds very cool. Isaac, what do you have? Uh, I have two picking up our theme of, you know, what you do with your influences uh, uh, in culture uh, is the theme of my endorsements today. The first one is uh, uh, in essay uh, by Jonathan Lethem that was very sort of formative for my own thinking about this called The Ecstasy of Influence, which is also the title of a book of essays by the same name. But the essay by itself is available at Harper's uh, and, uh, you know, at their, at their website. And it's this really brilliant and challenging rethinking of how we think about influence and originality and genius. Uh, and it's absolutely essential reading. If you ever want to make anything, it's, it's really essential reading uh, uh, as you embark on, you know, creating a work of art. And um, the second one is actually, if you happen to be in New York City uh, these days, uh, over at the Guggenheim, there's a new show by a uh, Vietnamese-Danish artist named Jan Vo, that's spelled D-A-N-H-V-O, but pronounced Jan Vo, called Take My Breath Away. And um, it's a found object show. I mean, his his milieu is, is found or, you know, purchased accumulated objects, which he then does various things to to kind of recontextualize them. Um, many 
many of them are about the Vietnam War and the U.S.-Vietnam relationship and about Catholicism. Uh, and it's really just a wild and uh, at times quite funny and at other times quite devastating um uh, exhibit. Um, one of the, I mean, I'll just describe two of the pieces real quick. One of the pieces is just framed letters that Henry Kissinger wrote the, um, theater reviewer of the New York post trying to get tickets for Broadway shows while they were um, planning the secret bombing of Cambodia. And there's actually one of the letters he's like, sorry, I couldn't come the other night. This thing with Cambodia has, you know, taken up all my time or whatever. And they're the actual letters. Jan though purchased the letters at auction. And then you, then he has them as sort of an exhibit. Another piece is a um, cloth from the Vatican city on which various holy relics um, rested, which has then been hung on the wall and kind of folded and treated as a tapestry, but it still has the ghostly impressions of the, you know, crosses on them and the ornaments and things like that. So he's doing these, uh, uh, and he did this exhibit, uh, or he did this piece a few years ago where he had the entire Statue of Liberty um, recreated into scale in chunks, and some of those chunks are at the Guggenheim. It uses the space better than any show I've seen there in a long time, and it's it's really breathtaking stuff. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, amazing. All right, well, I am going to... Um... I'm going to just endorse a song that's uh, just been haunting me for the last week. It's a song I didn't know, even though I've been a huge on and off off again Warren Zevon fan since the 1970s, if you can believe it. Um, he wrote a song in the 70s called uh, Desperados Under the Eaves. Do you guys know that song? I do not. Mm-mm. It's such a fucking hymn, man. I don't know that I have any more critically acute um, adjectives to throw at it. I just encourage people to listen to it. It... It just strikes me as a literally perfect piece of songcraft. And uh, just one other thing I'll say is that uh, check out some of the live versions online, but a, a sort of secondary endorsement or shadow endorsement here is the wonderful relationship that Warren Zevon developed over 20 plus years of appearing on a show with David Letterman. Letterman loved Zevon, loved his music, understood that he hadn't got the intention that he deserved, tried to give it to him and get it to him before Zevon died of, uh, of cancer in 2003. Uh, they had, it was just a great public soulful bromance. And um, though there are many great ones, this one, this one, it captures such a specific affect, which is sitting in Los Angeles a kind of human ruin knowing that the town exacerbates everything that's bad about your own tendency to self-destruction and self-pity and being completely unable to let it go. It's, it's just a perfect song. I really hope people check it out and listen to it. All right. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. And as always, our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. For Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Mecca. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. And if California slides into the ocean Like the mystics and statistics say it will I predict this motel will be standing Until I pay my bill What? Don't the sun